0: My guest today is Ben Thornley. He's co-founder and managing partner of Tideline, a specialist consultancy for the impact investment industry. Ben works with the firm's long list of clients to integrate impact and sustainability into various stages of the investment process. And they've recently spun out a standalone business called BlueMark, which provides third-party impact verification services for investors across the spectrum. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the business of sustainability, the new economy, and how your spending and investment decisions can have an impact. Ben's a consultant, and that's shone through in this interview, as he expertly explained some of the nuance and details about how the world of impact investing has changed over the past decade, and the components that are of particular interest today. And going back a few years now, Ben was the co-founder of the seminal book titled The Impact Investor, Lessons in Leadership and Strategy for Collaborative Capitalism. His co-authors were Jed Emerson and Kathy Clark, who have both been on the podcast previously. So it was good to have Ben on the show to add the final piece to the puzzle. So let's get into it. As usual, all the show notes are on my website at johntretgold.com and please send through any questions or comments. All right, let's dive in to my conversation with Ben Thornley. Here we go. Ben, thank you for coming on the show. No worries, John.
1: It's nice to see you, and thanks for having me. It's uh, I appreciate your insatiable curiosity for impact investing.
0: That's it, insatiable indeed. And you're in a great position to give us some insights. You've been involved in the space. You know, I assume before it sort of had its name and, and you're an author of one of the seminal texts with Jed Edmondson and, and Kathy Clark. So I'll be keen to talk about that today. Um, and of course, also about Tideline um, and the New Venture Blue Mark. But look, let's wind back a little bit because I'd love to, to learn about where you come from. People might have picked up your Australian accent there, but you're, you're living in Portland. Now, you were born in New Zealand. You grew up in Australia and now you're in portland oregon in the us the broad geography but a constant is bushfires now i know it's been pretty dramatic over there can you tell us about how you've been handling the wildfires and you know whether you have any sort of linkages to australia and 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 whether the reaction was similar to what we went through you know the, the previous year
1: i appreciate that question john because it was it was a very shocking experience to to live through I think quite a formative experience for the people that were here, where we were literally, you know, locked indoors for eight days, couldn't go out without not just a, the kind of cloth masks we're wearing now for COVID, but I mean, real heavy-duty sort of gas masks. Um, the the air quality here was um, was about 600 on the AQI index for for almost a week. And by comparison, on a on a bad day in um, you know, Beijing or Delhi, it might be two hundred, you know, AQI. So this was truly, you know, very hazardous air quality and it was um stifling the effect that it had, I think it particularly coming on top of COVID. So we're already in the house a lot. People are already, you know, fairly isolated. Uh, and then for that to happen. Um, It was just a a shocking experience of living through climate change in a very tangible way. So I think that um, as much as you read about it uh, and can empathise with natural disasters that others are going through, I think to live through it was uh, was pretty shocking. I remember catching up with with friends, and uh, you know, after we were able to come out again, and um, it was just a shock. I mean, truly, people were in shock. Uh, it brought uh, yeah, climate as I said into sharper focus and you know, the importance of community and the things we value because it was a complete sensory deprivation almost through that week so I'm, I, I can't say if that was similar to what you guys all went through in Australia but uh, it was certainly uh, an eye-opening experience
0: yeah and this, I mean this concept of climate change has obviously been around for for decades and, and there's this sort of lament that Oh, the problem with climate change is that the effects won't be apparent until it's too late. And that's why, you know, no action is being taken right now. It's sort of a bit of a paradox. But of course, this changed all that immediately. That it's, it's suddenly it is on our doorstep. We can't go outside. People are losing homes, you know, obstructing business. You know, that certainly happened to quite dramatically in Australia. And I think it's still going on. It's, it's you know, it's brought up as this wrote every time that this is why we need to deal with it so in in some ways that's positive in the progress that it's developed but obviously we've still got this huge problem i mean portland is is quite progressive and almost a stereotype in that way but do you think more broadly in the us that that's flowed through as well
1: i think so um perhaps frankly more from other movements that have taken shape in america in the last last few years i'm thinking of the me too movement for example, and Black Lives Matter, where I think the same general idea holds true—that there is an insidious, systematic challenge that, that we're facing as a society—and yet it, it only manifests in ways that we can see it, you know, every so often. So we set and forget, and then obviously, when it comes into sharp focus, we become more aware that we've been, you know, living this yeah you know, the entire time and you know we can't ignore it anymore it needs to take center stage and uh, i think climate is, uh, is is a similar kind of challenge where as much as you read about it as as much as you believe the science you know it's easy to forget until the next you know the next natural disaster but of course climate change is shouldn't be measured by natural disaster i think it's these slow burning tragedies that are really undermining issues of sort of equity sustainability in our society and so i do think that the me too movement um absolutely made clear that that this too you know the the idea of gender discrimination violence against women inequity on the basis of gender is absolutely uh, everywhere it's ubiquitous you know and of course you know systemic racism is the same so i think All of these issues, and frankly, they're the issues that take uh, really the focus for impact investors, are profound. And I think the the awareness of those issues is growing, which is partly what's motivating such growth right now in sustainable and impact investing.
0: Well, that's right. And and you founded Tideline, which is a a consultancy-focused on impact investors you know, across both social and environmental issues. Can you tell us a bit about that? Who are your clients and, and what do you do for them?
1: Yeah, so, so I found a tight line with uh, my two partners, Christina and Kim, seven years ago. Uh, we saw that the, the market was growing quickly. There were more mature mainstream financial institutions that were, were starting to pay attention uh, and they needed The help, they needed the help of an organization that could serve to some extent a bit of a translation function for them to help them understand the new language of impact, the new data that needed to be measured, the new practices that needed to be put in place uh, in order to truly integrate impact in an authentic way. So there was a need for an intermediary that could help bring impact to life, essentially engineer impact into the operations of these mainstream institutions that were wanting to do more and be responsive to uh, the demands of their clients for more access to product that delivered an impact as well as a financial return. So we uh, put out a shingle as a strategy consultant in impact investing uh, and worked with both asset owners, particularly very mission-driven asset owners in the early years, You know, Gates Foundation, Ford Foundation, Rockefeller Foundation, some of the most active participants. Uh, And then also on the other side of the market, those that were beginning to offer products to those investors, both niche specialist providers of product, for example, in community finance, you know, affordable housing, but also uh, mainstream providers that were beginning to, you know, offer access to impacted scale, groups like TPG, KKR, Newveen, Franklin Templeton Avenue Capital, and some of the large wealth managers uh, like Morgan Stanley became clients. So we've now worked with uh, over 75 organizations. We've completed about 125 projects, but we remain a relatively small firm. Uh, There are 16 of us at Tideline, primarily in New York and San Francisco, although I'm in Portland. And the projects are a mix of strategy setting for investors that want to become more active and impact product development for those that are offering asset management services and market building with you know, non-profit organizations, networks and others that are building the, the foundational infrastructure for impact.
0: You mentioned starting seven years ago, the industry has changed so much, I mean, even the term itself has sort of morphed and twisted are there any sort of key differentiators or or key sort of services you're offering today than you did when you started
1: yeah well you'd mentioned a blue mark at the start of the call which is a new timeline business where we have seen a clear need in the market and we've uh, created blue mark to meet that need that's the need for verification and assurance and impact so certainly that need has arisen in the market The other place where we spend a lot of our time uh, is in building the systems and processes that constitute a robust impact measurement and management practice. You know, I think there's more attention on that now. I think there's an expectation that investors will do that uh, in a very disciplined way, with authenticity, with the appropriate level of resourcing, and the appropriate level of transparency and accountability. So Tideline has become a specialist in helping investors design those systems and build those systems think of uh, so when i say system concretely i'm talking about um, tools and processes to diligence for impact screen for impact execute impact transactions with you know the kind of information you would expect an investment committee to have access to collecting data reporting data so there is a need for that kind of service and tight line is recognized in that area. And then on the flip side, and this is why we launched Bluemark, there's a need to verify that those kinds of services uh, are being implemented robustly. And Bluemark offers that independent seal of quality, if you will. And we've done that for about 25 uh, investors at this point.
0: Yeah. And so that verification role of Blue Mark is so important. That's obviously, you know, been pushed as the holy grail of, of building trust and, and, and people having faith in this this concept of impact investing. You know, it's all very fresh. You know, you're coming up on, on, on a couple of years of experience with it and tied closely to the IFC's operating principles of impact management. And, you know, I think the, the building of it together is so exciting and the potential is huge. As you said, you know, you've got lots of case studies. What sort of come out in the wash in, in terms of what assumptions might have sort have been proved wrong or what in particular, you know, are organisations not doing as well? And, and I can imagine that the, the organisations that have come forward early are some of the most progressive and probably the best performers. But, you know, surely there's still some variance in, in their performance.
1: Yeah, I think if I trace a little bit the development of the market in the last decade, and I promise I'll do that quickly, it'll give you a flavor for where I think there's still some work happening. When the market was launched, uh, or when the term was coined, Impact Investing, over a decade ago now, I think there was immediate recognition that we needed um, to make progress on measurement and metrics. Specifically, Iris was created at the same time as the Global Impact Investing Network as a consensus, comprehensive catalogue of, of impact measures. So measurement was something that was taken care of quickly. And you know since then, there's been a real focus on standardisation and consolidation of the kind of metrics that have been reported. That's one aspect of the definition of impact investing is measurement. And that became the focus of early industry efforts. Then we turned to the second pillar of the, how we define impact investing, which is intentionality. And I think that that is where there's been a lot of progress made, you know, in the last few years, particularly with the launch of the Impact Management Project and the use of the SDGs as a common framework for, you know, defining impact goals and outcomes. So that was the second piece beginning three or four years ago where we started to see a lot of of progress. So we started with measurement. We've then more recently made progress on intentionality. The third aspect in the definition of impact investing is contribution which is a clearer articulation and understanding of the ways in which investors are are adding value, the kinds of things they're doing themselves to contribute to achieving the impact goals that they've established. And that is where, in our view and experience, including on the verification side of the business, where there is still more work to do, what is differentiated about the capital you are offering? What is it about the technical assistance and networks that you provide investees that truly helps them optimize for and maximize impact? What kind of expertise do you have as an investor to identify, track, report you know, the right metrics? So I think investors are being asked the tough question uh, of how what they do is different. I think you know, additionality is a term that's been used for many years. I, th- I think it's a little broader than that. You know, it's more about value creation, impact value creation, but but that is where we see that work is still happening and uh, there's more divergence in the, I think the robustness of the way in which investors articulate their own unique contribution.
0: You know, this leads us to this concept of impact washing and trying to ensure that, you know, that that's not happening, that we have rigor and that people can have faith in the outcomes that are being discussed i mean obviously you know the the rubber hits the road because investments are being made on the back of something that was always subjective and always um almost a story and a narrative and you're making it very concrete and 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 setting these guidelines have you seen you know, perhaps the most egregious impact washers wouldn't have stepped forward for third-party verification. You know, having that mandated might be a long way down the road, but do you think the market has sort of shifted, that there's an expectation now and and more care um, is being used with trying to uh, market their fund as an impact fund?
1: Yeah, I I think that there is more attention to it, but there are also more products being launched. So whether or not the additional rigour and attention that investors are paying to to impact washing and the demand for a robust practice they're they're putting on their underlying managers is keeping up with or is um, the magnitude of that, that shift is as much as the, the growth of the number of products that are coming to market, I can't say. I think on balance, there's probably a greater risk of impact washing now, even though there is also more attention being paid to it and there are tools to try and prevent it. So I think it remains a real risk uh, in the market. It, uh, impact is, is hot right now, and so it's not surprising that many asset managers and others would be trying to you know, jump on that bandwagon. So I think we just need to keep creating simple tools and processes, solutions, for those that really are going to be charged with helping prevent impact washing. And by that, I mean, you know, particularly investors and other asset owners, asset allocators, those that are, you know, hiring and firing managers. So BlueMark ultimately could and should become one of those shortcuts because it's quite technical work to uh, separate the wheat from the chaff in impact. It's still a very nascent market, still a little idiosyncratic, Unfamiliar terms, um, applying things like the SDGs, the impact management project, you know, to an investment process is a little nuanced, and we wouldn't expect that uh, asset owners and other allocators who are themselves resource constrained would necessarily have the capability to do that with as much confidence as they would like to prevent impact washing. So I think it's incumbent upon all of us to keep pushing toward standardisation. Yeah, the creation of very efficient methodologies and trusted labels that, that can help investors discern, you know, good quality product from, you know, poor quality impact washing.
0: Well that's it and, and this this question of quality. And and I think to me, you know, there's this always this underlying issue around the bigger the industry gets the further away the risk that that investors are, are becoming from their beneficiaries and to me that that's the mark of quality is that you know there's genuine impact on the ground and we also want scale how do you sort of see that you know it's obviously a very broad sort of philosophical view of of maintaining the rigor of impact but also wanting scale with the core energy of of having impact to those that need it most
1: yeah i've been a big proponent in recent years and you'll see this in some of the work that For example, I've I've done through the years with Kathy Clark at Duke of segmentation and the value of segmentation. Because the truth is, you know, we can't be all things to all people. I think it's too complicated. The market is too large now and diverse. So uh, in my view, there will and should be products that are focused uh, on various parts of the value chain. They're always going to be very concessionary, catalytic, kind of debt and equity funds focused on certain themes uh, locally and and internationally, there will be larger players who are doing the job primarily of bringing the market to scale in more mature impact markets uh, in order to unlock uh, more um, more capital from some of the largest institutional investors in the world. And in between those two poles, you've got a whole world of government policy and foundations different categories of investors, uh, different types of structures and, and financial product providers. I think what we need to do uh, is make sure, again, that they can speak to each other efficiently. So let's take, for example, a large private equity firm, a hypothetical you know, billion-dollar fund that's being launched to invest in private equity globally. We need to provide them with shortcuts as much as they are providing their own uh, investors with a, with a shortcut to impact. So you can imagine creating standards and tools. And some of these, these things are being created now, like for example, SDG impact, which will be another new standard out of the, out of UNDP. And in order to understand what it means to integrate the beneficiary voice, There will be networks that they can turn to for advice on on the beneficiary perspective. There will be advisory boards they can create to integrate, again, perspectives from different places in different sectors. There'll be expertise they can draw on. There'll be thought leadership. They can invest in measurement practices that will bring the beneficiary voice to the table. So integrating a beneficiary perspective looks very different for that billion-dollar private equity fund than it might look like for the community finance institution in the U.S. South, where the membership of of that board needs to be from the community as part of their license to operate and ability to be a regulated community development finance institution. And so I think there are different levels of accountability depending on where you sit in that value chain. We have to insist that the beneficiary voice is heard and is integrated. But again, we need to make it uh, a process which is as efficient as it can be and where those who, frankly, are less familiar with how to engage beneficiaries and stakeholders are provided a roadmap on how to do that most effectively. So I think that the key is understanding that different organizations in different parts of this market have different roles to play, but helping create bridges that connect you know, up and down the value chain. And I think there's good work happening on that front, but it is important to keep keep that priority front and centre, the beneficiary uh, of impact investing front and centre.
0: Look, thank you for that. I think that's a really good, I guess, a map, a bit of a diagram of the world of impact investing and how there are very different players and they have very different motivations and constraints. That's just within the private market side of impact investing. So I then wonder, you know, this term's now expanding even even bigger. You know, it's, it's starting to shift into the public markets and there's a vigorous debate about how that operates. You know, I wonder what's your view on whether impact investing can operate? In public markets, and I've asked this question so many times, I often wonder if that's the wrong question. You know, maybe it's simply public markets are so different—being listed, having such a, a big shareholder list. You know, perhaps it's just we just need a different term and different concepts. How do you see it?
1: The challenge in public markets, I think, is primarily twofold: it's that most public listed companies are larger and more diverse in what they do. It's very difficult to take a company in the S and five hundred, for example. And isolate the business they have focused on education, where they're delivering textbooks to an underserved school district. Uh, you know that might be something that Standard and Poor's, the publisher, does, but that is going to be one percent of their revenue. So even if you have an education thesis and you hope to advance that specific outcome, and perhaps you know S and P or any other company is doing more of that than any other. publisher in the world. The truth of the matter is it's very hard to isolate that impact because you're investing in the company in its totality. So the first challenge in public markets is just the ability to isolate a specific impact and a specific impact thesis. The second major challenge, well, I guess there are a few, I think the second is a data challenge, having sufficient data to then measure that particular impact. Uh, And then finally, of course, and this is the one that that I think people struggle with most, the ability to influence a company in achieving that outcome uh, that you're seeking. Now, that said, I think one of the positive developments in impact in the last few years has been a more inclusive understanding that even impact on the margins is better than no impact at all. Again, it's recognizing different what I would call modalities of impact. So. Again, there's the, there's the situation where you may be a venture capital firm focused on, you know, financial technology as a solution for providing people, more uh, low-income people, access to to finance. That that is a very specific thesis, and there will be companies where that's their entire purpose, and that's great. That's a particular kind of impact. It may be uh, a smaller kind of fund that achieves that kind of impact. At the same time, if you are a large investor investing in public markets and you're tilting your portfolio toward companies that, for example, have more women on the board, more diverse management, have a focus on pay equity and a focus on products and services that are more responsive to women's needs, as an example, that is also a positive outcome. That is also a positive effort on your part to tilt your portfolio in a way where it is having more impact. That is going to be a, very, a much more diffuse impact. It's going to be a more difficult impact to measure. It's going to be a more difficult impact to uh, optimise for. But nonetheless, it is an approach that is making a difference. And so I do think that, that one of the positive developments has been a recognition that uh, that, that is an important effort and that this is in all, all-of-the-above moment for us, for humanity, and that everyone needs to be moving further along the curve that connects that kind of strategy, more of a sustainable and responsible investment strategy to a more specific, idiosyncratic kind of impact strategy. And so a sophisticated investor would understand that in public markets, only so much can be accomplished. And yet, if we have half of our portfolio in public markets, let's do the best we can under those circumstances. Let's push the needle as much as we can. Let's find as much data as we can. Let's uh, exercise as much influence as we can. So I think we need everyone along every point in that continuum to hop to the next chair along. You know, Like if we were playing musical chairs or something, everyone needs to stand up, step to their right, and sit down again. Stand up, step to the right, sit down again, and keep moving incrementally along the value chain toward a more impactful outcome.
0: You know, I certainly see it as a continuum, it's a spectrum and and, and we do want to move people along. As I puzzle through this challenge with clients and people I speak to, we often come to this point of impact in public markets and let's use the SDGs as a framework you know I think that is often it's useful in itself but it's also useful because it's the one that most people are moving towards and so I think in some ways that's going to build momentum to me I see these two options where on the one hand you can take the data from the company from their sustainability report where they tell you a narrative and it's often a narrative with lots of pictures about how the impact they're having on the SDGs that's one point the other is to Take raw data from a company, from their sales outputs, and then have you know an algorithm or a system where you assign a certain output to it to a, an SDG impact. Now, I know we're sort of heading off track, and, and you're much more focused on private markets, but I think the SDGs are a, are a useful you know are a linkage here. Yeah. Um. So I'd love to get your view on that.
1: Oh, I'm very interested in in the subject, John. So happy to happy to talk about it. Like, frankly, I think it's the next frontier, and I think there's good work happening in this area to try and bring public markets more into the impact investing conversation and people doing creative things that you're probably more familiar with than than i am but but i've been impressed at the at the progress that's been made um using you know blockchain and and big data the efforts out of the impact weighted accounts work that sir ronald cohen is leading and so i think there are some very exciting developments you know climate disclosure are things that are happening that um that are focused on on the corporate world world writ large. When you look at the data, what you find is, let's say you're looking at education. You know, coming back to that that example I used, and you're focused on the provision of education resources to an underserved population. You know, what the benchmark in inverted commas might show is that in the MSCI World Index two percent of revenue or one percent of revenue within the MSCI World Index is focused on providing education, you know, access to education. So the challenge there is you're saying, okay, well let's let's try and find companies that are generating three percent of their revenue from providing access to education. That's a hugely positive development. You know, if you're able to, again, make that tilt, you know, you truly are making a difference in your portfolio but it hasn't had the same, you know, the data is difficult to find. Uh, It doesn't resonate, you know, that doesn't resonate as much with an investor uh, who might think, well, what difference am I making if I'm at 2% and the benchmark is at 1%? And in public markets, you know, benchmarks obviously are constraining and I think they handcuff many investors who are very focused on achieving some return that is in line line with, with a benchmark. I believe that the kinds of methods of data collection you mentioned, you know, focused on revenue and some of the creative work that's been done there are all very positive developments. But we need more data, we need more investors to be more open to being benchmark unaware. I think it implies a very active management strategy. As you know, most of the money in public markets is now in indexed strategies. So there are a few fundamental shifts in the way we typically invest in public markets that need to happen, I think, in order to make impact more possible. But I'm hopeful. uh, And I think it is a a real frontier where we're going to see a lot of
0: growth in the next decade. That's right. That's right. Thank you for that. That's great insight. And then a lot of um, positivity and optimism there. Now, going from that view of the future, I'd love to wind back a little bit. You wrote the book on impact investing, and your co-authors were Kathy Clark and Jed Emerson, who have both been guests on my podcast. And I'd love just to wind back to you know the time when you all three came together, decided to write a book, and just get a feel for what was going on at the time, what some of the issues were, and what the genesis was to, to come together.
1: It was a great few years that we had together doing that work it almost felt like a, a startup project because the end result was a, was a book in the same way the end of a startup experience might be the creation of a company. Uh, and it was the same sort of thrilling experience of trying to bring folks along with, with the vision we had. And the crux of that was that impact investing was already happening and happening successfully. And the problem was uh, it was too easy to dismiss as a fad uh, or as a, as a niche that ought not to be taken seriously. So I think we all had been part of the market's growth. We knew that there was so much more to this. There were already track records that had been established. There were already very mature practices and rules of thumb for how to succeed and resumes that worked in impact and people who were just doing a fantastic job, were it not for the fact that it was happening you know, behind the scenes a little bit. So we knew it was happening. You know, we have been around long enough. Frankly, you know, Jed and Kathy had been around a lot longer than I had. And, and I think um, it was a privilege for me to benefit from their incredible experience and insight. So they'd seen it. They'd seen it happening and had seen it happening successfully. Uh, and so uh, I think what we wanted to do was to bring that to life. We also knew that there was alpha in impact. We also knew that these groups were not only succeeding but they were you know, outperforming in many respects from a purely financial perspective to be honest but also I think in, in a more holistic sense you know achieving both the financial and impact performance they were seeking or as jed calls it the sort of blended value that was resulting you know, from their efforts so you know we, we set about to shortlist and identify a group of managers that we would profile in a, in a, in a research project called impact investing 2.0 which again was premised uh, on the fact that we felt the market had matured to a point where it, it was ready you know it was ready for prime time again it was it was just a real thrill to, to be able to get to know 12 investors that we featured in the book and to draw out some of the commonalities among them and we ended up subtitling the book that is sort of a lesson in leadership and strategy for collaborative capitalism and what we meant by that is that not only are impact investors succeeding, and we revealed some of the ways they were doing that in the book. There were certain skills and approaches, and techniques that were common across across that that small sample. But uh, they could see where capitalism was going. They could see where markets were going. As Dave Chen at, at Equilibrium Capital has put it, you know, they're able to see things that other people were not able to see because they were steeped in certain Uh, experiences they had had and and a commitment to uh, realising double bottom line returns, essentially. And so, you know, we truly believe that it's harder to be an impact investor. And if you've done it successfully, you've proved that there is a better way to invest. I'm not, you know, presuming that all investing is impact investing is less of a, um, has been less of a focus of some of my work and the comments I've made but i think the fact that all investors can benefit from an impact lens is absolutely paramount and and i've seen that in tidelines work as well where we've taken some of the concepts that i've I've spoken to you about concepts of analyzing intentionality measurement contribution public versus private digging into how impacts implemented across asset classes and across the Avoid, Benefit, Contribute framework in the Impact Management Project. And we've taken those tools and frameworks and we've applied them in a setting, which is a, a essentially a non-impact setting with a manager that is not labelling their fund impact, uh, but is trying to, again, move further down the sustainability curve. So, for example, we recently did that work with an agriculture, a very mainstream agriculture fund. And the value for them of understanding the impact perspective and understanding what it means to more intentionally engage a rural community as a workforce and as a supply chain and proactively uh, focus on land preservation and proactively focus on GHG emission mitigation within agriculture, which is what they were doing already, but to help them understand how to continue to advance that as an intentional, very disciplined, measurable practice was was profound. And we've seen that over and over again at, at Tightline. I think in our work, the number of light bulbs I've seen go on in boardrooms, I can't even tell you. It happens almost every, every time we work with a client that they see suddenly the world with clearer eyes. They see the value of integrating impact lens into the way they're doing business. I think they see the young people in the room become so excited about the work they're doing together and and it just ticks all the boxes. More information, fast-growing sectors, great recruiting tool, a new level of insight on risk and new ways to enhance a brand in a world where consumers are demanding, sustainable and responsible product. I know that was a long answer. <laughs> I apologize. But it was um, that was what uh, really sort of drove Kathy, Jed and myself to do that. And I think what we discovered was um, very reaffirming for us about the power of, of impact investing.
0: Yeah, look, and I think that that's a good way to finish up that that concept of the impact lens. I think that, you know, while you're trying to set a very high mark, for impact investing and then you know that it's very verifiable um, but at the same time all businesses can benefit from using an impact lens and understanding impact measurement um, risk analysis engaging with their customers as beneficiaries and all of their stakeholders so yeah I really appreciate that and that's what of helps me drive it all forward but look before I let you go would you be able to give us a book recommendation tends to be the last question I always ask and uh yeah anything that's helped your career or even just what's on the side table good question i think
1: um one i enjoyed reading uh recently was uh was michelle obama's book becoming maybe i'm not the first to recommend it but uh i enjoyed that i miss her so much although fortunately you know you can catch michelle on netflix and (laughs) and other platforms nowadays but um i just uh just think so highly of the former first lady and i think her perspectives on on things you know, like marriage and relationships and just how we bring our full full selves forward are, are just profound and i think um, she's just such an authentic individual i just enjoyed her book and i think she has a lot to teach uh, teach all of us
0: very good i well, look thank you for that and uh, and thank you for all of your insights today it was really great i'm um, happy to go deep on this kind of stuff and i think your role as a consultant is a really useful one because you have such a broad sort of focus and and obviously you spend a lot of time in boardrooms explaining a lot of these concepts so hopefully that's come through to people and and, and people have learned a lot well thanks john it's, it's been a pleasure being with you good stuff all the best